you will join me in Luke chapter 19 this morning. Luke 19, we continue in our series uh, through the gospel of Luke. This morning we will be looking at verses 11 through 27. The title of our sermon is Kingdom Investment. Our key words for our worshipers in training are minas, invest, and servant. Well, on New Year's Eve in 1961, <clears throat> some of you, a few of you remember that, four wannabe rock stars drove in a snowstorm from Liverpool to London in England for an audition that they had the following day at Decca Studios. They played 15 songs showcasing their regular performances at the time. It was a mixture of rock and R&B. They had a few standards and a few original songs. And at the completion of their audition, the record executive named Dick Rowe was unimpressed and he told the band's manager, Guitar groups are on their way out. Five months later, the band finally signed with Parlophone Records, leading to what has been, to this day, the most successful artist-producer collaboration in the history of music. The band, of course, was the Beatles, who, even now, 51 years later, continue to sell records. Thus far, the Beatles have sold 2.3 million, or excuse me, billion albums. They've spent 1,278 weeks on Billboard charts and have had 15 number one hits. John Lennon, commenting on the recording that they made at Decca Studios, said, I wouldn't have turned us down on that. I think it sounded okay. I think Decca expected us to be polished. We were just doing a demo. They should have seen our potential. And that's at the heart of every missed opportunity, isn't it? Not seeing the potential. Perhaps in your life you've missed significant opportunities. Turning down a job offer to a small startup company eventually became a Fortune 500 corporation. Maybe you've had a great product idea that you never followed through with and later someone else thought of the same thing and patented it and sold it for millions of dollars. I think of the missed opportunities I've had in my life, the day-to-day opportunities that I have, times when I could sit with an older, wiser Christian and just ask questions about life and walking with the Lord that would be a huge benefit to my soul, opportunities to put down my work for a little while and watch my children make new discoveries and create new memories, opportunities to speak words of hope and, and truth into desperate situations. Opportunities to think of others is more important than myself. Opportunities to love my wife as Christ loves the church. Now, a lot of these things we get second chances, we get many chances at. And yet other times we are left with the consequences of missed opportunity. We think back and we wonder why we didn't see it for what it was. Why we didn't understand the potential. We certainly trust in the providence of God. We we understand his overarching design for the events of our lives. However, we also see in the scriptures a call to be wise in the decisions we make. To make responsible choices. 
and to be shrewd investors of our gifts and our possessions. In the text we're looking at this morning, Jesus provides us with a parable that exhorts us to wisely invest ourselves for the sake of the kingdom of God. Not missing opportunities that may uh, prove to yield increases beyond what we could even imagine. This is about living out the Christian life day by day as Jesus makes his point with a parable involving a nobleman who receives a kingdom and the attitude of his subject. So let's begin Luke chapter 19 in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear Immediately. Now, so far in Luke's telling of the story of Jesus, we see Jesus coming into the world to be our Savior, and he has begun to establish the kingdom of God. John the Baptist said it, and Jesus said it. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus told his disciples around him, The kingdom of God is in your midst. He was baptized by John. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He began to preach that the kingdom of God had been promised throughout the Old Testament, had come to fruition in the person and work of Jesus himself. That which had been promised was now arriving in the timeline of human history. The kingdom had come because the king had come. Wherever the king goes, his kingdom is with him. And the kingdom has come in great power. It has come with great authority. He's cast out demons. He has stood against the powers of darkness. He's even proven himself to sinlessly defeat Satan, to defend against him in the wilderness. Jesus has entered into the enemy's camp. He has reversed the devastating effects of sin. And he has reversed the devastating effects of bondage in the lives of men and women and children who put their trust in him. How does he do this? He's healed the sick. He's cleansed lepers. He's shown his power and authority over the wind and the waves. He's raised people from the dead. We've seen this time and time and time again through the Gospel of Luke. And here's the main thing that he's been showing us. Because more than any other gospel writer, this is what Luke has set out to provide. That we would see the power of the kingdom of God in the actions of Jesus. And the truth of the kingdom of God in the teaching of Jesus. So we see the power of the kingdom of God in Jesus' works. And the truth of the kingdom of God in Jesus' words. Now, we know what Jesus is doing, right? He, he is establishing a new society, a new people. Men, women, boys, girls, a people who are set free to wonderfully and joyfully live and serve and delight in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And through all of this, not only has Jesus proven himself through his power, and not only has he proclaimed the truth for all to hear, he has also been training his disciples He has taught them the important truth about the kingdom of God and the life of a believer. Now, the context here of Jesus' teaching is taking place on a journey. 
A journey that began in chapter 9. Remember, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem in chapter 9. And he's resolutely set himself on this path. Until this chapter we're in now, chapter 19. Jesus arriving at his final destination. From chapter 9 forward, Jesus is moving to be tortured and to die on behalf of his people who have placed their hope and trust in him alone. To be raised from the dead that he would live everlastingly at the right hand of the Father. And so all along this journey, the disciples who are following Jesus physically while he's teaching them what it means to live life in the kingdom spiritually. And so here in chapter 19, this journey comes to an end. This is the last parable of the book of Luke. They're about 17 miles from Jerusalem. They're very close to Passover, and the great Passover lamb is about to be sacrificed. And so in the context of the gospel of Luke, this is where we find ourselves this morning. It's important, always remembering to know our place in the story of the Bible. If we don't understand the context of the whole picture, we'll not understand the individual elements of it. Now, in this parable, Luke does what he has done so many other times, and he tells us the point of the parable up front. He says this, He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So, as we've discussed previously, All of the prevailing notions of what the kingdom of God was going to be were false. And so Jesus, once again, is here disassembling their notions of what it was. There were many following him, and even more so uh, now that he was almost to Jerusalem, who were were thinking uh, of, of what this was going to become. The kingdom of God was about to break in in its final form. Jesus, who had shown power over sickness, over disease, over demons, over the forces of nature, now he's going to break the bondage that the Jewish people are under in the Roman government. And they so desperately long for this. You see, they saw Jerusalem as the great capital city that was laid out in the Old Testament scriptures. And they believed that this, King David's greater son, would do this for them. They saw themselves as the members of this kingdom. They thought they were part of this powerful, elite people of the world, that they were the power people, the great community that was going to dominate the world. The political kingdom of God was going to finally and gloriously be established in their midst. The only problem was that they were completely wrong. And so Jesus, Luke tells us, is teaching this parable to crush their misunderstandings about the kingdom of God. Jesus is is telling them that what is going to happen in Jerusalem over the next few days was not the full consummation of the kingdom, that they were assuming it would be. That's what they were looking for, but that's not what was happening. Now, there was a long way to go until that happened. There would be a long time. Still today, we await the establishment of God's kingdom in full. And God in no way will establish that through a political Messiah, but through the witness of those who are humble 
of heart, who are meek in spirit, those who have suffered for the sake of the gospel, those who have followed Jesus in death and resurrection into the kingdom of God and have become witnesses throughout the earth. But even still, we've looked at this several times, they just did not get it. Their eyes were blinded to the truth of what the kingdom was and what it was to be. Now remember, it's, it's important for us to not pridefully assume that the disciples were ignorant fools who didn't know anything. They simply knew what they wanted, but they didn't look beyond to see what God was actually going to do. So often we're, we're focused on what we want instantly. We're tempted to want the consummation of the kingdom, that it would come here and now, instead of being called, as Jesus makes clear in this parable, to walk in life as humble, fruitful servants within the kingdom in allegiance to our king. You see, what we see in this parable, and, and here's the main point that Luke brings out. Jesus is continuing to instruct on the dynamics of what life is like in this new society. What life in the kingdom will be. He's bringing to the surface this reality of of life with Christ in the kingdom of God. And he's telling the disciples, you're not inheriting something physical and political, but rather spiritual. And now they're living between these two fixed dates on the divine calendar. The first is this this time period, the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. When he fulfills the law, he dies a sinner's death and is raised from the dead on behalf of sinners like us. That's one time on the divine calendar. The other is in the, in the future, a time when Jesus returns in majesty and in glory to fully consummate his kingdom. We've, we've talked about this. Jesus has laid out for them the already not yet reality of the kingdom. It has already come, but it has not yet fully been consummated. And so now, as Jesus has been doing for several chapters, he explicitly lays out for them that his instruction is for them to live as humble servants, using the resources and treasures of the gospel that have been given to them by Christ, that they may bear much fruit as his people in the already not yet. So let's see how Jesus gets there, beginning in verse 12. He said, therefore... A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not, we do not want this man to reign over us. <clears throat> So Jesus' parable begins by using something from the political context of that very day. There was a Palestinian ruler by the name of Archelaus. He had an insatiable desire to be granted a kingship. Herod the Great was Archelaus' father. And when Herod died, his will gave Archelaus over half of the kingdom. But the title of king could not be passed on. That had to be given to him 
by the greater king. So Archelaus was, was not content to just have the land. He also wanted the title. So he assembled for himself an entourage of people, including many of his own family members. And he left for Rome to meet with Caesar. And when he got to Caesar, he wanted to ask for the title of king. You see, it all backfired when he got to Rome because all of his family members who were there actually opposed him. They didn't want him to have the title. Even more surprising, from behind came another delegation of 50 Palestinians, Jews and Samaritans traveling together. And then beyond that, the 50 were joined by 8,000 expatriates, Jews who were living in Rome who had scattered because of his cruel treatment. So right there before Caesar and this vast throng of people, the Palestinians related that Archelaus had massacred some 3,000 Jews at Passover and heaped their bodies into the temple on top of one another. And then he tortured others, all to prove that he was as powerful as his father. And if that was not enough, all of the people argued that he was inept and, and corrupt and corrupting and was ruining a very prosperous land. So Caesar decided that he would give Archelaus only half of the kingdom, and in time, if he was able to prove himself, he would be given the title of king. But Archelaus never did prove himself worthy to Caesar and was never called the king. So all of this scandal is tucked away into the minds of the Palestinians and of the Jews. It was part of their lore, Archelaus the wannabe. So Jesus' parable begins with a reference to this very storyline. It would have been unmistakable to the people there. A nobleman went to a far country to receive a kingdom and then return, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. It's the very thing that happened. So the parallel here is unmistakable. However, Jesus' parable takes a different turn than the episode with Archelaus because it was not about a would-be king, but it is about the true king. It is about Jesus himself. Now look at verse 13. What does Jesus tell his servants? He gives them 10 minas. That's one mina each, which is the equivalent of about 100 days wages for a laborer. So he gives each man just over three months' worth of salary, and he says, engage in business until I come. So here's two things that we need to take note of here. First, he gave each of these men the same amount. And by way of application for the Christian life, we recognize that God has given every single Christian the same deposit. We all have the transforming work of God in the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within each of us. We are stewards of the gospel. We've been entrusted with the gospel. You and I have received the same gospel and the same Holy Spirit as the Apostle Paul, as a Charles Spurgeon, and every other one of your favorite Christians who've ever lived throughout history. We all have the good news of Jesus Christ and its marvelous transforming effects in our lives. 
We've all received the very same thing. Secondly, he gave each man the same command. He said, engage in business until I come. We must invest the investment that Christ has made in us. We are to multiply our spiritual capital, to invest the gospel, to increase the yield of the good news through Christ. Now we're going to get to more of this a little bit later, but here's the question. Are we, are you faithfully investing that which has been entrusted to you as a Christian for the sake of God's kingdom? Are you, according to your gifts, engaging in that which God has called you to, that you may bear gospel fruit in the end? We all have the same investment in us. We are all given the same command. Now, what are we doing with it? That is the question we're dealing with here. Jesus goes on, verse 15. When he, the nobleman, returned, having received the kingdom... He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they have gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So the master's given one mina to ten different servants. And here we will see three of them return to show the master what they've accomplished while he was away. First, we see two of the servants who've made wise investments with the minas. The first one turned one into ten. The second turned one into five. They were wise investments. Any of us in today's economy would be happy for those kinds of returns. So what does the master say to them? Well done, good servant. You see, the return of the master's investment comes with a reward. It's not just that you did it and you, you get told good job. What, what else happens? I'll tell you what. You used what I gave to you. You made a 900% return for me on this. Do you know what I will do for you? Now that I have a kingdom, I will put you in charge of 10 cities. And the second servant, he gave him a 400% return. So he tells him, I will give you charge over five cities. You see, here's the point. There's a relationship here that Jesus is identifying between the investment that is made in service to the king and the blessing that is received from the king. And this is the key to all of this. It's really important in understanding Jesus' big picture. The point is that the blessing is completely out of proportion to the service that was rendered. What were these servants doing? What were they being asked to do? All they were doing was following instructions. They were doing what their master told them to do. They were working hard. They were bearing great fruit. And what did they get as a result of it? What's the master's response? Well done. And now as a result of that, you can call the shots of how things will be in Rincon and Port Wentworth and Garden City and Savannah and Macon. And I'll also throw in Atlanta if you really want it. 
These are yours now. Do with them whatever you wish. And for the one who truly delights in serving the master, for the one who enjoys their service in the master's kingdom, they will say, but Lord, why? What have I done? I don't, I don't deserve this. This is not owed to me. This is not something I've earned. This is not something you need to give to me. I was just doing what you expected of me. And the master replies, don't you see? I'm full of grace. And it's because I'm full of grace that you were delighted to serve me in the first place. The reward is not commensurate with the service. In other words, the service is a very small thing compared to what is obtained from it. Why? Because the master is not the cruel tyrant that the people assumed him to be, but rather he's gracious and merciful as a master who delights in giving those who serve him good things. But that's the mind, right? Before we're in Christ, that's our mind, that he is a cruel tyrant. That God's desire is only to suppress our lives and to make us miserable. But he proves here he's working for the good of his people. The truly faithful servant won't complain that the work was too hard or that the investment was too much of a burden, but rather will look at it all and say, I'm owed nothing because it is an honor. It is a complete joy to serve my king in this way. You see, for a Christian, living according to God's word is a delight. Walking in joyful obedience to all that he has commanded is not a burden. It's a delight. Why? Because the master is gracious and the Lord has made us willing and has given us new desires and new affections that we need not disdain the master. But what happens if we do? What happens if we do look to what he has given us and we think ill of him and his commands? Look at verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put the money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest." It's a missed opportunity. He didn't see the potential. He thought only of the possibility of negative consequences here. The servant stands before the master and pulls out his dirty handkerchief and wrapped up inside of it is the one mina that the master had given him in the first place. He did nothing with it. Sir, this is what you gave me? And now I'm giving it back to you. What good was that? He could have left it in his pocket. Why did he do that? He disobeyed the command of his master. The master said when he left, engage in business until I come. So what does he do? Nothing. What was his motivation? 
He's sad because he's afraid, because he was a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. But clearly what the man says of his master was slanderous. These things weren't true. The master even questions him. Notice in verse 22, he's asking, he's, he's repeating what the man says as a question. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? He's puzzled by this statement. It's clearly wrong. He could have said, did you not just see what I did for the other two? Are you calling me severe and dishonest? Is this being severe? Out of your pocket comes a handkerchief with no return on my investment. Out of my pocket comes grace and mercy and love. And so the man's problem is that he assumed that the master was harsh and severe. And he never had any motivation to serve and love him. I hope you see the implications for the Christian life here. What is Jesus communicating to the disciples and to us? As Christians, we must learn what it means to live life in the already and not yet kingdom of God. We're members of a new society. We are made to be a people who live life to the glory of God, pursuing holiness and justice and righteousness. We live as a people who continue to look back to Christ's finished work on our behalf for our salvation while simultaneously looking forward, not simply to our death, but to the day of Jesus' majestic coming in glory. The kingdom will be fully and completely and finally established. And we see this in the parable. We see it with the first two servants, right? The two most important dates for them were the day the king went away and the day when the king would return. The resurrection and the return of Christ. And what does the king expect for them to do in between those two days? How did you serve in my physical absence? What was the fruit of your investment? Did you take advantage of the opportunities given to you? Or did you miss them? The alternative is to be like this third man. The sorry Christian who slanders God in his heart and hoards what he receives from Christ. He carefully folds it in a cloth and stores it away. He thinks, I can't be active, but at least I can be a conservative. I can preserve the Christian tradition. I can show up for worship. I can bring my own Bible. I can send my children to Sunday school. I can wrap my religion in a handkerchief and conserve it. Brothers and sisters, it's shameful. It's a waste. It's a neglecting of God's grace. It's a neglecting of the gifts he's given you. Remember, the investment of God in the lives of all of his children is exactly the same. We all have the gospel of Jesus Christ if we are in Christ. Furthermore, he's gifted each and every one of us uniquely for the body of Christ to function in such a way that we're bringing him glory in the world around us, in delighting in the Savior instead of ourselves, delighting in the Savior instead of our, our money and possessions, instead of our jobs, instead of our, even our relationships with other people. So what are your gifts? And how are you investing them in this life? Or are you just sitting on them? You have them folded up in your back pocket, waiting to show them to the king when he returns and say, I have what you gave me. I didn't do anything with it, though. 
Lord, when you made me a new creation in Christ, I settled in my mind I was going to sit back and wait until I died because I knew I was forgiven and I knew you would return and I wouldn't have to answer for any failures in these things. I wouldn't have to do hard work by using what you've given me because I knew I was just going to be okay in the end. You see, here's the balance we need to strike. This service unto God is not to earn our salvation in any way. Even in the parable, the mina wasn't something the servants earned. It was given to them by the master. So the issue is not, am I investing this so that I will be saved? The issue is, I am saved. I am in Christ. He is my master. And he's given me the great riches of the gospel and the spiritual gifts he has made me to walk in. So what am I doing with his investment? A healthy, growing Christian is saying, I want to honor Christ. I want to use what he has given me to bring glory to him. I want to talk about him. I want to learn about him. I want to serve him. I want to serve and love his church. I want to be a part of his church. I want to give all of myself to knowing and loving God and his people so that I can have sweeter communion with him. And then Jesus tells us, when that's our life, when that's our heart, the reward when he returns, is magnificent. It's well beyond what any one of us could ever imagine. But for the one who simply seeks to slide by. You know, people have told me before that they're not all that worried about serving the church or being an active part of the body of Christ because they know they're Christians and they know they're going to heaven. And even if they're wrong about not serving... They know they'll be forgiven and it won't be a big deal because nobody in heaven is disappointed. And so they'll still be there even if their treasure's not as great as others. You know, that's a disgrace. It's a complete disregard for the true king and the treasure that he's invested in each of us. But that kind of man walks around every Christian church every Sunday and he expresses the same kind of attitude as this third servant, right? Maybe it comes in the form of, God requires so much of me. It's so hard. I'm trying my best, but he's so narrow. He seems to have it out for me. But here's the problem. That man doesn't truly know the character of his master. He doesn't know... The master, he suffers from a delusion of thinking he knows his character when he does not. Just like this man. I thought you were harsh. I thought you were cruel. Uh, But for the Christian, we persevere because the Lord Jesus turns what are our duties as Christians into a delight. Because he is a gracious master and Lord. And the tragedy here would be to have the heart of the wicked servant. It's much like the older brother in the parable of the two sons, right? Father, you, you never, I, I've, I've served you, I've slaved for you all of my life. You've never thrown me a party. You've never slaughtered the fatted calf for me and my friends. But what does the father tell him? My son, everything I have, you can have it all. It was all yours, but you thought I was a harsh and severe man. 
And when something of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ strikes us, yes, it may be difficult, it is. There may be many days and weeks of struggle and weakness, but serving the King is a joy. And it sets us free to walk the course of grace. But notice what happens to the last servant. Verse 24. He said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This man's works are incinerated, even though he himself is saved. As Paul said of a wood, hay, and straw kind of life, if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.15. Every believer has been given the same gospel deposit to invest. And regardless of our abilities, if we invest it, we will receive rewards far beyond our measure. We will reign with Christ. We will be his confidants. We will be his co-workers in eternal enterprises. To everyone who has, more will be given. But to the one who has nothing, he who's taken the gospel and wrapped it up and tucked it away, even what he has will be taken away. Are we investing the gospel? Are we investing what God has done for us? Are we investing what he can do for others? This is not a question of giftedness, but it is a question of faithfulness. Are we using what we have to invest in the kingdom, to invest in the gospel, or are we missing a golden opportunity? Do you not see the potential for the kingdom and also ultimately for your own gain in heaven? There are many specific applications for this question. Are we using money to invest in kingdom priorities? Your possessions personally given to aid people in need, to promote evangelism and missions. How do you spend your time? Your personal calendar tells so much about you. How is your time being invested to bear fruit for the kingdom? What about our mouths, the things that we say? How are we investing our testimony and our witness? There can never be such a thing as passive investment. Gospel investments require action on behalf of God's people. Now before we close, take note of verse 27. This parable ends with a frightening finish. As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. These are the people that were mentioned early in the parable in verse 14. Citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. This is their end. This is the future of all who reject Christ. Christ 
the lion lamb will slaughter his enemies at his return. This is what John saw as recorded in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We may be horrified by the fierceness of this passage. But beneath the terrifying imagery is a solemn fact. Jesus coming into the world forces every single person to deal with him. It's a matter of life and death. The noble son came, and before he went away to acquire his kingship, two things happened. First, he gave a gospel deposit to every one of his followers. And second, his enemies attempted to deny his kingship. They killed him. But through his death, resurrection, and ascension, and glorification, he substantiated his eternal position as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he will someday return. And to those who have invested his investment in them, there will be unthought of rewards awaiting. To those who have hidden it, shame. To those who reject him, everlasting death. Brothers and sisters in Christ, his kingdom is coming. How are our investments? Friends who do not know Christ... The king is coming. You cannot dethrone him as his enemy. Why won't you bow your knee to him as Lord? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That your word instructs and convicts and pierces through joint and marrow as a double-edged sword. Lord, it opens our wounds of sin and likewise applies the balm of the gospel that we recognize that we are found as your people in Christ alone who has rescued us. And because we are rescued, we no longer dwell in bondage to sin and death. And so I pray, Father, because you have made us able, that we would walk in obedience to your word, that we would take this great investment of the gospel, and that we ourselves would invest it in lives of service for your kingdom's sake, for your name's sake, for the glory of our King. And so we pray, Father, that you make us to be more and more 
thankful for the opportunity to serve in your kingdom. To turn that which we look at initially as a duty into something that we delight in. And that day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, that we would continually pour ourselves into what you have called us to as we live as a people awaiting the return of our Savior. That when he returns, we not be ashamed, but that we can boldly stand before the throne of grace, revealing how we have invested what you have given to us, that you would be glorified all the more throughout the world because you have saved us and set us free to walk in obedience and love and compassion and justice and mercy. May that be who we are as your people for your name's sake and for the joy of the nations in Christ Jesus alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.